Welcome to Beyond the Ocean. Here's a clip from today's guest. There's a, an, another factor here, which I think I'm getting a greater appreciation of as we go further along on this journey with the surf parks is, is repeat visits. I think surf parks have a higher potential for this than I ever thought. I live near Bristol in England in the UK where the wave are and they've been open for over a year now. And I'm in and out of there a bit. I like to surf there. And at the beginning of a session, they ask, have you been before? And the group sort of put hands up and some people have. And even within the space of 18 months, it used to be everyone saying, no, this is my first time through to pretty much everybody now saying, yes, I have been before, which is showing you this repeatability. And actually you're getting a whole number of visits from the same individual instead of lots of individuals coming once. So the ideal market location is a large city population with an inherent large surfer base within it. So yeah, California is absolutely prime. The big cities, regions of Australia on the coast will be absolutely prime because you've got large population base anyway, of which there are a lot of surfers. So you can drive those repeat visits from it, which is amazing. my first tube this morning, sir. Welcome to Beyond the Ocean, the podcast exploring surf parks and the impact of technology on the future of surfing. We speak with technology leaders, investors, operators, and surfing legends to explore this exciting new movement. I'm your host, Chris Klusner. Welcome back to Beyond the Ocean. We're joined today by Matthew Heislop. Associate Director of the Destination Consulting Group at Colliers. Matt has been working in the surf parks and wave pools industry for many years, most notably with the Surf Snowdonia project in the UK. Matt shares all kinds of juicy insights related to how landowners, investors, operators can work together to optimize surf park projects for the better. Please join me for this wide-ranging conversation with Matthew Hyslop from Colliers International. Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Hi, no problem. A pleasure. Pleasure to join. Yeah, and just the way we start off this show... Would love to have you give an intro and provide a little bit about uh, what you do. Sure, of course. Um, so I'm Matt Hislop, and I run the destination consulting team at Colliers. We're based in the UK. Uh, Colliers are a big global real estate advisory firm. So we've got offices in most of the major global cities, big presence in North America and Europe and, and Asia, uh, anything to do with commercial property and real estate. Um, but we have a very niche specialist team in the UK, based in the UK, but we work all around the world, that we're called Destination Consulting. So that's early stage strategic and commercial advice to destination developments, anything to do with visitors, visitors coming to a place. So we're either building a new place or helping evolve and, and add to an existing place. And anything that's around building a strong business case for that. And it covers all sorts of different things, but anything in the leisure, tourism, culture, sporting space. And we have over the last, well, quite a few years now, really developed a specialism 
in surf parks, which has brought us here today and, and, and crossed paths before. Yeah, incredible. And, and just by way of example, it sounds like surf parks, of course, are not the core focus. Sounds like large, you know, commercial uh, destinations are. Could you give us some examples of non-surf park projects that Colliers might work on and then some surf parks that you've been involved with? I think one of the advantages and the things that works really well with our surf park work is the fact that we can bring experience from all sorts of other things. So on any given day, we might have a client who's a sort of traditional visitor attraction, something like a zoo or a museum. That's really sort of good core work for us. Big venues like an arena or a stadium, that's interesting to us. Uh, we're doing lots with adventure sports. We do a lot in the UK and Europe with heritage properties and cultural heritage properties, finding modern uses for difficult old buildings or anything just with um, a leisure-led concept, but in a more complex master plan. So over the last five or six years, we've been very busy in the Middle East through the UAE, Saudi Arabia, looking at massive master plans, but adding significant leisure and tourism content to that and helping just build the rationale of why that's the right scheme for that site and that situation in that market context. So it all feeds into, we often work in parallel with the design teams. Uh, a lot of our early stage work is helping set a brief for a design team or working with them. And that often all then leads into things like trying to get development permissions, trying to raise money, trying to get the right development or operational partners, political partners, these sorts of things. So you're the team that everyone should call once they've got an idea for a surf park project, generally where it's going to be built and how it should operate. So you're the first call, it sounds like. Yeah, we, we, we try to be as early, as early, as early in the process as possible. And I think that's where we can lend most value. It's that time when you can have a team and they may or may not have a site. They might just have an ambition to deliver a surf park, but really taking it from that blank sheet of paper through to the first cut of, you know, the, the output of a lot of our early work is some sort of document or report, a business plan, but it really helps set the case for like what this thing is, why we're doing it, who it's for, what the product mix is, how it works on a particular site. And we do a lot of focus work on visitor forecasting. So if the business plan and the business model in general is, is really centered around selling tickets to something, if you get your visitor forecasting wrong, then the, all, all the revenue that flows from that, you've sent it in the wrong direction. Uh, and it's very easy to be optimistic and, and overly optimistic. So we spend a lot of time trying to, as scientifically as possible, really hone in on the visitor forecast and then looking at revenues that flow from that, operational costs that you need to run your business. Does that give you a profit at the end of it? And does that, if it's a commercial scheme, does that look like an attractive investment proposition for somebody. It's really fascinating because it seems like such a core, it, it has to be such a core component of any business plan is who, how many people can come and visit. And specifically through my work with Surf Park Central, I've noticed that there's a sort of an X factor in these early stage projects, which is how many people can be there at one time and be, be surfing. So can you talk a little bit about how you and your team work with industry players such as the different wave technology providers and developers to to help assess that and, and make those realistic forecasts yeah no problem so the 
you know, really what you're touching on there, and it's a critical issue for surf parks, is, is capacity. And it comes from any visitor destination. You could be a theme park, but a very big theme park has a parameter of its peak day. How many people can we really squeeze in on the busiest day? That's their capacity. The surf park gets very interesting because it's about number of surfers in the lagoon in a given hour. Most business models are based on let's sell an hour of surfing, which is a nice unit of time. It's neat. It's a, it's a good experience for the surfer. But how many can we sell in an hour and therefore how many in a day? And what does that build up to if you're fundamentally constrained at the beginning because we can only fit in a relatively small number, you're already sort of, there's a very sort of difficult limitation to work with there. So a significant part of the technological race has been around building capacity in the lagoons. Can we fit a decent number in at any one time that's safe? You still got a really good experience. It's still good value for money. Can you mix skill sets in the same hour? So you could have higher skill surfers and beginners in at the same time. Anything that increases the capacity and, and wave frequency is a function of that. So the more waves we can do, the more capacity you can have theoretically, which also relates, comes back to this idea of value for money. Like, you know, if I've paid $50 for the hour and I'm only getting five waves, that's not great if compared to 15 or something like that. But there's quite a lot of factors to balance off there. And coming back to the question you asked around the other players in the market and the technology providers, so we are an independent advisor and our clients are typically the developer, effectively. The team who are trying to build it, trying to construct it, and most teams are developer operators. They have acquired a site or have a site and then they are trying to raise the money to build it and to run it and take the upside of that over a period of time. So we work, work for them. They then have a contract or a partnership with a technology supplier, be it any one of the number who are, who are in the game. And we do have a role at the beginning, which is helping give some advice around the advantages and disadvantages of different technologies. Different products suit different locations, sites. You might have a site that's a certain shape and size that might send you in one direction. Your market location is a huge factor. So we really interested in the, you know, getting into the nuance of are we next to a massive city? And really, this is about volume and big numbers of people, in which point we need scale and high capacities, high wave frequencies. Or are we, I don't know, in a more niche boutique sort of situation where it's about uh, being a premium resort and we're really focused on overnight stays hotel resort type accommodation and a much more high-end premium experience, which could be about smaller capacities and premiumizing it. Makes sense. And it, it does help to explain why we're seeing the earliest surf parks, at least in, in the US and California, but also you know news from the Gold Coast recently. We're seeing surf parks emerge in places where there are already great waves and a lot of surfers, which on first glance, you, why are there three or four Projects popping up in Palm Springs. Yes. <laughs> Palm Springs is going to be the capital of the world for surf parks, isn't it? Yeah. It's, doesn't San Diego and California generally have enough surf already? But it's it's exactly for that reason. It's a high number, a high... There's millions of surfers in that area. So the, the forecasting is probably much more 
able to be validated by the those early innovators. Is that right? There's, absolutely. And there's a, an, another factor here, which I think I'm getting a greater appreciation of as we go further along on this journey with the surf parks is, is repeat visits. I think surf parks have a higher potential for this than I ever thought. I live near Bristol in England in the UK where the wave are and they've been open for over a year now. And I'm in and out of there a bit. I like to surf there. And at the beginning of a session, they ask, have you been before? And the group sort of put hands up and some people have, you know, and even within the space of 18 months, it used to be everyone saying, no, this is my first time through to pretty much everybody now saying, yes, I have been before, which is showing you this repeatability. And actually you're getting a whole number of visits from the same individual instead of lots of individuals coming once. So the ideal market location is a large city population with an inherent large surfer base within it. So yeah, California is absolutely prime. The big cities, regions of Australia on the coast will be absolutely prime because you've got large population base anyway, of which there are a lot of surfers. So you can drive those repeat visits from it, which is amazing. There's another trend that I'm starting to see emerge around membership models, where it's not about repeat visits with no long-term relationships. It's actually, uh, you need to become a member to be able to attend at all. And so there's a higher barrier to entry, but you would assume a much longer retention span and, and number of repeat visits. Have you seen that come up in your work? Uh, definitely. It's something we've always discussed and always looked at. The base position on most business models we've worked on hasn't been that as the primary function. It's been more of this, and I, I see it as a sort of, it's at the visitor attraction end of the spectrum. Someone wants to come, they visit, they buy a ticket, they have a nice experience and they, they go home. And you either get them to come back again or, or you don't. But there's absolutely uh, scope for this to be a membership-led thing. And you want to slide it up to the other end of the spectrum, which is more like a club. It could be a bit like a golf club model or a health lifestyle club model. And again, that would play very well in large populations with a wealthy population with a high surf base. Um, so I could see it going well in, yeah, Australia, America, Brazil, less so in Europe. We, do, we have less big cities right on the coast, but so it doesn't necessarily mix the two. I think there'll be more and more of that. Certainly scope for it. It's very exciting. And yeah, only time will tell. But specifically, I'd love to hear some of the projects, the surf parks that you're able to speak about. I, I know there's probably quite a number you're you're not able to talk about, but Specifically through Colliers, it'd be great to hear about some of the projects there. And then maybe we'll rewind even uh, before that and, and talk a little bit more about how you got started in the space. Yes, sure, sure. Um, so we, I could wind it back a little bit. We got going, the team started looking at surf parks in about 2012, 2013. I mean, look, that's nearly eight, nine years. And I'd say we'd looked at a good 20 plus projects in, in some detail all across Europe the Middle East and and in America. If we look to a couple in Asia, but less so. So we're fortunate at Colliers because we bring the specialist skill out of our team, destination consulting, but we have local real estate and research sort of colleagues in those countries and cities on the ground. So if we get a phone call tomorrow and there's a scheme in San Diego, 
I know I've got colleagues in San Diego. They don't know about surf parks, but they know about everything else. So we, we make a nice double act. That's been a big advantage for us. I guess our depth of experience started in the UK. Surf Snowdonia, now Adventure Park Snowdonia in North Wales. The Wave, Scottish team, the Wave Garden up in Edinburgh. And we're in and out with other projects. We've looked at schemes across France, Spain, Italy, Germany, Holland, others. Surfworks, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They're a good longstanding client. That's an exciting one for me as an East Coast guy. Yeah, it's not far away. Yeah, that'll be exciting. And there's a whole bunch of others. Some sort of came and went and didn't progress to delivery and fruition for various reasons. And there are a number that, that we don't discuss publicly that are still sort of cooking away and on their way. I guess what's useful to point out amongst those is we often do two fundamental things, really. One is a early stage feasibility business planning role. So you're helping that core project team suss out, what is this project and is it a good idea? And our, our advice is to them directly trying to scope out that first cut of the numbers and what it might all look like. That then arms them with something that can go to help raise investment, help make a case for a development permission, inform a design team, uh, get political support or whatever you're trying to do with it. It really sort of sets a base for them. That's really core cool work. Or we're on a slightly different side of the fence, which is giving a second opinion, playing a sort of due diligence role. And then we might be acting for a potential funder or investor who are like, we've got this project, it's come to us, we'd like the look of it, but we'd like a second opinion, please. You know, they've given us this set of numbers. Could you do a review of that? And actually, we're doing and more of that, which is partly a factor of the fact that there's more projects, they're at a more developed stage more of them are at that critical sort of capital fundraising stage. And that's proving quite an interesting interesting role to play. Absolutely. And I, I do want to double click and talk more about what are the factors that typically come up in reports like that? What are investors asking about? But just from the highest level, I won't quote you on this, but by our count, there's about 10 projects that we can see videos online and see the wave operating. How many projects are at the top of the funnel on a global scale about? Is it 100? Oh, wow. That could easily be, yeah. Yeah, hundreds, right. Maybe around 100, but then it funnels down pretty quickly, like you say, to a really credible, serious project. Because they're very difficult projects. They're really exciting and they're uh, there's full of potential. But as a lot of, uh, I think, some of your other guys who've spoken about and at the summit is discussed, it's it's not easy. and there are long, quite difficult, challenging journeys to go on, a lot of which have been set about by, you know, sort of excited entrepreneurial surfers, which is a great starting position. But you're, you know, you need a big piece of land that you actually own or have legal use of. So that's large and costly. Ideally, you'd have construction or development experience. You'd have operational experience or leisure experience experience of the surf industry in the widest sense. You need deep pockets, you need serious capital funding for this, all sorts of different challenges. And there's sort of big pieces of the puzzle that you need to organise. So if you have none of those pieces at the beginning, it's quite a long journey. And it's quite an easy thing to underestimate how long it might take. And some other, you know, groups have, are better placed for that, because they might have a few of those things already. And I think what you're seeing now is, as the sector evolves and matures, people see 
or perceive less risk in it because they've seen others jump first. And you'll get larger development outfits that have experience with large-scale development, construction, serious investors with deep pockets or major leisure operators all taking a look. And once they all sort of come together with a few of those factors, that they could move quite quickly because they're you know, well-placed to do so. What causes projects to die on the vine, as they say, you know, just sort of, because if eight out of 10 don't make it from idea on paper to actually digging, why is that? How can 80% or more fail? If we take a step back and look at all of our project work, not surf parks, but surf parks plus everything else, it's that sort of realm. And there's no two are the same. So the answer is never the same. The broadest answer would be money or the fundability of it, the investability of it. And really, we've seen surf parks delivered on a relatively sort of private basis. So wealthy individuals or organizations who either own land, have money and have the general capability to deliver one with relatively limited external input have been able to jump in there first and, and have a go or in the earlier days. But then really this all hangs on, is it a genuinely credible investment proposition? So if if someone else has $10 million, $20 million, $50 million, if they put that towards their project, are they confident that that's a sensible use of their money? So you're, you're competing on against things that yield a better investment return elsewhere, regardless of whatever that is. And you'll get people who do it uh, with an eye for loving surfing. It's a slightly sort of heart-led investment as well as a head one. But fundamentally, you have to have a project that is de-risked enough for others to think, yeah, I'm, I'm going to sign up. So you have to make it investable. So you have to have the land has to be fully secure. So like legally, uh, you either have to demonstrate you own it fully or you have the right options to acquire it fully so that that's not a risk area for them. You have to be super confident that the surf technology you're using is something that other people can buy into. So they're confident it does all the things we talked about earlier, like it delivers a great experience with great capacities, is reliable, it's not going to break. Ideally, it's been done before. One of the great, great challenges was no one had done it before. So everyone wants to jump second or third, but no one wants to jump first. You know, if we're going to build a hotel and invest in a hotel, there are a million other hotel investments that other people can look at to take a view on it. But when you're playing this sort of game and knocking the door down, it's, it takes a certain amount of bravery and courage to jump first. On that note, I mean, you you above almost anyone else in the industry have been looking at this for eight or nine years, as you've said. And I'm curious if there are anything you can share from how feasibility studies were done eight or nine years ago and any, frankly, assumptions that were not the right ones or any evolution of how that modeling has has changed to today. The fundamentals are the same. So we've always looked at the same sort of issues and factors. So the underlying things will always be the same, like, are there enough people living nearby to generate your visits? Is this a high tourism area or not? Is it a high surf area or not? So we talked about this idea that I'm more interested now in looking at forecasts which have high repeat visit numbers from more core surfers than just like lots of individual visits from tourists or resident population. I think there's a more nuanced factor in that. But I think that the fundamentals are really the same. There must be uh, other things, though, that really have changed. 
It's still early. More generally, then, it would be good to talk about how we've seen the financing change in this category, in this industry. Because as you mentioned, early on, it came from heart-led investments and from you know high net worth families, not really institutional capital, but that is starting to change as well. And I'm hoping you could share a little bit how you've seen the funding landscape evolve over the last you know decade or so. There will be a factor in that. So I think you have a situation now where it goes, it has to be proven as a commercially investable sort of product for it to have real longevity and, and long-term viability, which is starting to happen. And you'll see institutional investors backing maybe private equity or venture capital, but there's a sort of range. And I guess they're looking for, they might be looking for de-risking the investments in a bigger scheme. So I think we'll see, and this suits, I think it suits sort of North America and the America as well, like big mixed use schemes where there's a significant residential component maybe, or multiple uses. So really it's a, it's a large mixed commercial real estate investment of which one part is a surfing element. So real estate, that sounds like a big, it's a new frontier. If we have a 20 million surf scheme, if it's out on its own, that's probably riskier than mixing it in amongst a 200 million wider real estate investment. You can, you can dilute the risk in amongst a broader, bigger scheme. I think that's one factor. Another factor is another type of diversification is just having broader use types and revenue streams. So it may be more of an accommodation-led model or just adding more overnight accommodation, I think will be something we'll see more of. So yes, we're selling hours of surfing, but also this is about short-stay trips, having people, yeah, spend the night. And you really might be led by that than the other way around. You really might be more of a resort that's diversified with the surf. So much like you get golf resorts, if you replace the golf with surf, you've, you've got a similar model, which to some investors, I think could be more attractive or an easier, more sort of reliable, or as a, there's a stronger evidence trail that supports that. It's, a, it's all about de-risking. To your point, there's just much more data on the real estate market. And specifically, one, di- one fun data point from Surf Park Central is we have data that show a home near a good surf break is worth about a hundred and I think it's $106,000 more than the same home two miles further away. And, you know, you have to then think about the implications of that for a surf park. What is a home next to a surf park worth? It's a pretty exciting prospect. So can you talk a little bit more generally about what you're seeing on the real estate side, the residential real estate side of surf parks? You know, what is working so far in the planning that you've seen being done? I can comment a bit, but not too much directly. Like I haven't recently or looked at in detail a surf scheme with a significant residential component within it. So most of the European projects, which is mostly what we've been working on, are more that day visit model and, and some overnight accommodation type. So we've got a surf park, there'll be a nice food and drink offer, a shop, and you can spend the night maybe in lodge type accommodation or a hotel, but they don't necessarily have a big residential second home type offer. I know schemes are definitely looking at that. Brazil is a, a preferred model there. Uh, it works well in places where there's large, cheaper land available. 
And I have heard anecdotal stories of either sales. I don't know if you necessarily generate a premium on the sales of the residential units, but you might sell them faster or, or generate more interest and inquiries. So there's certainly an upside or a benefit. And there's certainly an interest in that whole model, which is we are a residential-led real estate scheme that's differentiated by surfing. And, and just to your point, it does sound like that is a model that in the Americas or potentially Australia, that's where those projects are popping up because of Europe's usage patterns, probably not as common. It, specifically in Europe, maybe for a project like Surf Snowdonia, uh, are you able to talk a little bit more about that facility in particular? Because I'd love to hear a little bit more, you know, what makes Surf Snowdonia so interesting and, you know, worth considering as a case study as future developers look to break into the space? Yes, they are a long sort of standing client of ours. And we worked with them from the very, very beginning in 2013 or so, maybe even in 2012, when there was this, you know, blank sheet of paper idea, which is they were looking to do a leisure-led scheme. And we helped them evolve the concept of using the surf park as the central anchor for that. It was when Wave Garden's uh, lagoon technology was sort of either just coming out or was out, and that was a front runner of a choice, and that's where they, what they went with. But we really spent a little time with them, and this is really nice to see now. North Wales is a strong tourism location in the UK, mostly for British people making a trip within Britain, probably for like a weekend or a long weekend, certainly in the summer. It's a really beautiful, mountainous, wild, national park type area. And so it was all about, can we create a, a resort type environment with multiple activities anchored by a surf park? So the first round or phase one investments were delivering the surf park. But if you go there today, and even within a month or two, they are cutting the ribbon on a new hotel. They have a number of lodges you can stay in. There's an indoor adventure center with all sorts of other activities to do, like climbing, salt course type stuff. And so there's a really nice mix of, and I really, I like and strong on promoting this. You, you've got to try and balance the different skill sets. So not just skill sets, but the experiences. So surfing is great, but it, it, is, it is niche. It's not everyone's cup of tea. And in, like, in places like the UK and Europe, Northern Europe, it's wet and it's cold and it's quite difficult. So you also want to have things that are dry and really easy and just daft fun. Things that are indoors, things that are out, things that are dry, things that are wet. The time of day is interesting. You can have things that are a bit more evening-led than daytime. And if you have a balance across those around a concept or vision, which is about, yeah, physical, outdoor activities, active entertainment, and you've got a really nice diversity of balance and breadth. I think that's what, what they are doing really well now. Yeah, it's quite a quite a diversity of experiences. They've got the whole zip line going over the surf pool. And it's still and, a uh, function of location. So would you put that same product mix right next to Manchester or another big city somewhere else? No, probably not, because it's it's totally different site opportunity and everything that goes with that. It's fascinating to think about then, you know, we've we've had other episodes on this show that get into the cultural elements of of surfing and how this is quite a different experience and you're surrounded. There's not just surfers there at a facility like Surf Snowdonia. There's 
there are mountain bikers, there yeah, are, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, so it's a different experience, but it sounds like uh, it's, it's something new. It's not the same as surfing in the ocean. No, it's definitely something new. And that's, that's to be enjoyed, I think. And that's the benefit to take. And it's obviously really good for learning and progression. And like, if you think of other sports, pretty much all sports actually really suffer from needing to build new, build the base from the bottom up. So every year you have to get kids interested. So golf is suffering because kids aren't as excited or interested. So the take up in golf is limited, which means over time your, your sport is withering. Um, so you've got to feed the bottom of the pyramid in all sports. And these surf parks have a huge role to play in that for surfing. It will grow the sport and it gives them a fun, enjoyable, easy entry point. And off they go. And you can develop and progress in a skill front really well and quickly which is excellent. And then there's that sort of competition or more serious training element, which is also a really powerful dimension that these, these things can do really well. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've talked to surfers that, you know, as young as, uh, you know, 11 years old, uh, Sierra Kerr, you know, doing airs that I could never imagine myself doing yeah, it's amazing. at BSR. And then yeah, just it's really exciting to see as more of these facilities continue to open. And just as a way to start to to close out the, the show here, I would love to hear from you what's got you excited about where we are now. You know, it's mid-2021. More of these facilities are being built. It sounds like you have uh, some exciting ones that your team's working on right now. What should everybody be excited about in surf parks over the next 12 months? Next 12 months, and I might even expand that a little longer, but there's, there's a really good moment happening right now where a number of parks that have been in planning for a while are opening. And I guess hopefully post-pandemic, they'll be accessible and they can trade and open up. And we'll see a real proliferation of a number of high-quality facilities opening up all around the world. So this isn't going to go from having one or two or three and then we'll actually, we'll, we'll, we'll quite quickly have sort of 10 or 15 and they'll be all over the place. And I would hopefully, I think, and I think it would be really healthy for the whole sector is that happening across a number of technology providers so that you get diversity. And it would be really interesting to see how those experiences compare from a user point of view, how the businesses compare from a business viability and investability point of view. I mean, there's schemes in the States, in Brazil, uh, in Europe, Australia, Asia. It's going to be popping up all over the place. So I think these will be the, the boom years. And I think behind the scenes, and I can see it in Europe, if you assume a lot of the projects will happen, the market is playing out so that the core opportunities are being taken and snapped up and being, being delivered. So the first movers in those locations will have the advantage and you know the sort of the map is being carved up and in a number of places has been carved up and it is playing through now very exciting and uh definitely sounds like we're in the right position here to observe the future being built in in front of our eyes here <laughs> how can folks that are have heard this episode and want to build their own park and carve out their own section of the map how can they learn more about colliers and get in touch yeah, sure. Um, the best thing to do is probably Google Collier's Destination Consulting. You'll find us online. You'll find web pages. Please reach out. It's Matt Hislop or Matthew.hislop at Collier's.com. 
We'd love to hear from you and always interested to talk uh, all and any surf projects uh, wherever you may be. Very exciting. And uh, again, thanks for taking the time to, to walk through all this and really exciting. I'm sure it'll be a busy next few months and years. No problem. A pleasure. Enjoyable to speak and uh, more soon, hopefully. Thanks, Pat. Hey everyone, here's Chris again. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. For those of you who want more information on surf parks and the topics covered in these episodes, Surf Park Central's Insider Membership might be for you. Insiders are people serious about surf parks and the organizations they represent. You can join Insiders for a monthly membership fee and rewatch all the surf park summits that have ever happened. You can get transcripts, access to research reports and white papers, even see webinars with special guests like those who visit us on this podcast. So check out surfparkcentral.com slash insiders to learn more about this exclusive professional community for surf parks. Check it out, surfparkcentral.com. Thanks for listening, guys. This is Chris Klusner again, just with a few last-minute thoughts. Please do check out our website, beyondoceanpodcast.com, to subscribe to our newsletter and get exclusive updates from your local surf parks and out-of-ocean surfing experiences near you. You can also learn more about our sponsors and the incredible guests we host on the show, you can also access show notes and links. Anything that's covered in the podcast will be featured on the website. Again, it's beyondoceanpodcast.com. Check it out. <laughs>